guys. We are in week two of our series, Living Hope, studying 1 Peter together. Before we get back to 1 Peter chapter 1, let's talk about phobias. Phobias. You all have one. I'm going to guess phobias are irrational fears. A phobia is when we are f- afraid of something to a degree or in a way that is illogical, right? So one of the more famous ones is arachnophobia, the fear of spiders, the irrational fear of spiders, or acrophobia, the fear of heights. There's many, there's many. Some phobias are less common and therefore less familiar, like ambulophobia, which is the fear of walking, thing to be afraid of. Uh, almost as inconvenient is geniophobia, the fear of chins. <laughs> chins. I've learned the official term for my phobia is galeophobia. Galeophobia is the fear of sharks. And I have it for real. This is my greatest irrational fear. Because the likelihood that I will get eaten by a shark is very, very low. Very low. I actually lived in Huntington Beach for two years. It's literally called Surf City. And I had countless invitations to go surfing. I went zero times. Because I won't participate in an activity in which something could literally eat me during that activity. (laughs) Not going to do it. I was told repeatedly that being in the ocean surfing, it's wonderful, it's enjoyable, it's thrilling, it's fun. I choose the aspect of that conversation. So many people would say that I am missing out on something wonderful because my focus and therefore my fears are on the wrong things. With that in mind, I want to introduce you to another phobia called euphobia. Euphobia is the fear of good news. It's a real thing. This happens to people when they've been so badly disappointed by the loss of good news in the past. We can fear good news really because we fear disappointment. And while I doubt that anybody listening suffers from regular euphobia... I have a theory that I've had for the world suffers from biblical euphobia. And here's what I mean. We tend to suffer from an irrational fear of good news in the Bible. I speak from experience. I've I've been doing church ministry for 22 years. Over and over again, I've seen the church, people in the church, individuals bend over backwards in order to see something from the Bible in the most negative perspective possible. This makes sense? It does make, theologically it makes sense. Like Romans teaches that before Jesus, our pre-converted state, that we are naturally enemies of God. Romans teaches actually that we hate God before Christ. So it shouldn't be surprising to us that we can have a euphobic perspective on the Bible But it is unfortunate that we often continue to struggle to leave that behind even after we meet Jesus. Carry around the most negative perspective on the most positive news possible. 
And I want to give you an example, a couple examples. Can't remember if I've shared this with you yet, but so many of you in this room right now could quote Romans 23 off the top of your head. Also true verse. Way fewer of you know Romans 3.24. I don't have to ask. I just know it's true from 22 years. Romans 3.23, boom, ready. Romans 3.24, hmm. We stop memorizing after verse 23, and what's crazy is verse 24, verse 23. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. And then verse 24 starts out with an and, same sentence, same thought, and are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. That's Romans 3.24. News, but it's almost like we don't want to hear it because it's too good to be true. And probably millions of people have stopped memorizing in the middle of a sentence, leaving off that we are justified by God's grace as a gift in Christ Jesus. Biblical euphobia. Just like my thoughts on sharks and oceans... We can miss out on something wonderful because our focus and therefore our fears are on the wrong things. I'm going to give you a second second example, which is going to be what we spend our time on today. Here's another famous verse. 1 Peter 1.16 says, For it is written, Be holy, for I am holy. Christians are to be holy. And some of you are like, Dun, dun, dun. It's true. I know it's true. Here, here Peter is quoting from Leviticus 11. So we're back at 1 Peter 1. He's quoting from Leviticus 11. In verse 45, For I am the Lord who brought you up from the land of Egypt to be your God, so you must be holy, because I am holy. And the natural reaction of so many of us is, No! It is... We can read that command and feel burdened. We can feel scared. Maybe hearing that sentence feels like too much pressure. Maybe it feels like trauma for some of you, depending on where you came from, especially in the King James Version. Be ye holy, for I am holy. But guys, this is another example of focusing on the right words the wrong way, and making bad news out of good news. This is an example of viewing Scripture with a negative and incomplete perspective, and it's negative because it's incomplete. Everything where I'm beautiful, it's good, and in the middle of it all, be holy, for I am holy. So I want you to see the good news of that good command. And to help us see that, we're going to look back at all the grace that is loaded into that command, that this command to be holy like God is holy, just from what is directly preceding it in 1 Peter chapter 1. And we looked at all of this last week. So remember, it's going to be on screen. Remember, Christian, you have been given great mercy through Jesus Christ in verse 3. You have been given new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead in verse 3. 
you have been given an inheritance, right? We talked about this, don't forget, that is imperishable, undefiled, and unfading, kept in heaven for you in verse 4. You are being guarded by God's power through faith for a salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time in verse 5. You rejoice with inexpressible and glorious joy because you are receiving the goal of your faith, the salvation of your souls, verse 8 and 9. You have, Christian, what angels long to catch a glimpse of, verse 12. And then the very next verse, Peter continues in verse 13. Therefore, because of all of this, therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ as obedient children. Do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance, but as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct, for it is written, be holy because I am holy. In its true context, that is a beautiful command. Let us not suffer from biblical euphobia, even though that's not. The call to holiness is a good call that flows from the good gift we have from a good God in Jesus. And for that reason, the primary thing that I want you to remember today is this. Hopeful living is holy living. We looked last week at the, and unpacking the phrase of living hope. Living hopefully leads to living holy. The word holy there means to be sacred, to be pure, to be consecrated. It doesn't mean to be miserable, to be anxious, to be always worried that you're not doing it right or that you're not doing it good enough. That's viewing something positive as a negative. Holiness means... To be like God because we are in God and being in God is the best thing that's ever happened to us. Hoping in God leads to holiness in God. And I want you to see what hoping in God entails and how that shapes our holiness. So life of a follower of Jesus looks like so that we can remember that it's good and hopefully do it more. Here's the first one. I'm going to give you several. Kind of all under that. Hopeful living is is holy living. Here's the first one. You can live expecting the ultimate good. We looked at the Greek word for living hope last week in verse 3. Remember? Does anybody remember what it was? The Greek word for hope. Elpis. Well, that doesn't... Weston puts the slides in, so it's a little bit... No, great job. Great job. Elpis means the expectation of good. Remember, it's been, that's my favorite phrase of 2024 so far. The expectate, we are born again into a living hope, the expectation of good. Peter goes on to say that we get to live expecting the ultimate good. Look again at verse 13. Therefore, with your minds ready for action, be sober-minded and set your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. So we talked about this last week. The living hope that we are given through the new birth, through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead, is an imperishable, unfailing, undefiled inheritance kept for us in heaven. Meaning that what awaits us as followers of Jesus 
is the undeniably ultimate good of reunion with Jesus and satisfaction forever. That's what awaits us. Reunion with Jesus and satisfaction forever. That truth then changes how we live between here and forever. We live focused on the ultimate good that we expect. We eagerly expect the ultimate good. We live then knowing that any difficulty that we find in this world doesn't compare for, to the world that awaits, to what awaits. The phrase, with your mind ready for action, that first phrase, therefore with your minds ready to action. In the original language, it's the fairly, that's the King James the CSB goes mind ready for action. Gird up the loins. A lot of you know this meant cinch up your robe. Get yourself not so encumbered because it's time to run or it's time to fight. So implied in that image, cinch up your robe. We got to go. Implied in that image is the reality that not everything's going to be perfect. My, we found out this week, and this can be a prayer request that I want to just squeeze into the sermon, but it fits here. We found out our daughter, Joy, who has, was born with no ears and has had so many surgeries to create ears. We found out this week that she's going to have to lose one of her ears. She's going to have to go back into surgery and have, she's going to lose it. That's not what she wants, I promise you. She keeps saying, it's going to be a big change. It's a, it's a big thing for her, small thing in the scheme of the world. Certainly not what, not everything is going to be ideal. But we walk through it, or we run through it, or we fight through it, knowing that the ultimate good, the fulfillment of heaven, might be of your thirteen in light of the ultimate good that we await. In verse this, in this verse, still verse thirteen, we see the word hope again, don't we? But this time, it's the verb form, not the noun form. So it, it's it's el pizzo. El piso means the expectation of good. El pizzo then means to active. So living with that perspective gives us strength. It gives us stamina. It gives us joy to walk through whatever lies between right now and the ultimate good. Uh, Thinking about this this week, I thought of one of my best friends, Matt, who is this super talented guitar player who's now a lawyer. And years ago, we were friends in our early, early 20s. And then, I mean, still, still today, we talk all the time. But in his like mid-20s, he was making $18,000 a year teaching guitar lessons. So he decided to go back to school, and he took out a $300,000 student loan to go to law school. And we talked about it a ton. He was super stressed. I mean, we hung out basically every Friday for a long time. And he told me that for the next three years, he would have to live very differently And he wanted me to help him stay focused on why he was doing this rather than distract him from doing this, which I don't know which one I did more of. But he had a wife, and then he had a child on the way, and he wanted to take care of them. So he told me, there is a bright future hope. We talked about what he hoped would happen. There is a bright future hope after law school. He he told me he was going to take me out on his yacht someday. And it changed the way he lived. He told me he wouldn't be hanging out very much anymore. And I would call him to hang out and he would say, no, I've got to study. Like he built his life around preparing to be a lawyer and getting through law school and passing the bar and becoming in-house counsel at a billion dollar company. And I've gotten to walk 
every baby step of that journey with him over the last 15 years. He called me two or three weeks ago laughing about a bonus that he got that was more than most people make in a year. Sadly, God has turned him into a very generous Christian, so I haven't gotten the invite to that yacht yet. (laughs) He really likes to give his money to, dang it. (laughs) But Matt, watch, Matt set his hope on the grace to be brought to him at the revelation of the bar exam, and it changed how he lived. He lived sober-minded. He girded up his loins for a time, living in light of what was coming. And we can take that mindset to infinity because what we are waiting for is infinitely good. It's infinitely hopeful. We don't wait for a bar exam and a yacht. We await the revelation of Jesus Christ and the new earth in which we will rule and reign with him forever. Change how we handle our robe. We live expecting the ultimate good with our minds ready for action. We can also live from a new nature. At the very beginning of verse 14, new nature says the phrase, as obedient children. Check this out. Children of obedience was a Jewish phrase that meant more than just an action. It meant a nature. We are children. We aren't just children who are obey. We are children of obedience. And we, we talked about this in our series months back on sanctification. But God doesn't just draft us to be his followers. He adopts us to be his children. Becoming a Christian It's not just an adjustment of our actions. It's a transformation of our nature. First John says, see what great love the father has given us that we should be called God's children. And that is what we are. The gospel actually changes who we are and therefore how we live. So hopeful living leads you to live in light of your new nature. It also leads you to live in opposition to the desires that kept you from God. Look at the rest of verse 14. As obedient children, do not be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. We talked about this in in the sanctification series as well, but God, God doesn't call us to holiness as a punishment. Jesus took the punishment God, one of the reasons, there are many, but one of the reasons God calls us to holiness isn't punishment, it's protection. Remember, God doesn't want us to work in ways that don't work. So the way that God asks his adopted kids to live is in line with how he designed the world to flourish in him, right? The way we lived before Jesus is the way that broke the world and stole our joy in God. The way we lived before Jesus broke the world, stole our joy in God. Those ways are ways that lead to death and not life. Peter's saying, don't go back to that. Of course, don't go back to that. Why would you go back to that? Uh, The first, this is the first mug that I ever remember being my favorite mug. It's from a set of mugs my grandparents had, so it had nostalgia. But the truth is, I was ignorant that there are better mugs. I didn't know there were better mugs. 
Now, I'm a devoted Yeti user. We've got five or six of these in the house. Every day, I'm using one of these. I'll never go back to drinking in this mug. Never. This mug barely holds any coffee. Most, I truly, this isn't in the notes. I just want to plead with you guys, not for the gospel, but for the Yeti. I don't know why people drink in mugs like this. I don't understand it. These are ever, you could just get one of these and then your coffee's the right, like it's coffee. Anyway, it's not the point. But I can drink hot coffee in my Yeti for hours. Why would I be conformed to the desires of my former ignorance as it relates to coffee? Why would we be conformed to the desires of our former ignorance in the way we live? And I'm going to be super honest. Every once in a while, All the Yetis are dirty because we're behind on the dishes. And I don't want to do the dishes. And I'll pull out this mug. And it's miserable. I always regret it. Do the dishes. Listen, you can apply that to your holiness however you wish. (laughs) Don't go back to be conformed to the desires of your former ignorance. You know the coffee will be cold if we have tasted and seen that God is good. We know the old mug doesn't work. The old ways of life don't work. Hopeful living leads to holy living that is beautiful and good. Next, being born again into a living hope leads you to live like your loving father. Look again at verse 15. But as the one who called you is holy, you also are to be holy in your conduct. For it is written, be holy because I am holy. And there it is. But first, Christians are called. The one who called you into everything that we looked at in the first 14 verses before this is the one who calls you into holiness. As we consider holiness, as we consider hope, we can never forget that we don't luck our way or earn our way into the expectation of good in Jesus. It's a gift. God calls us Christian. Christian, your father pursued you. The good father was not forced based on your merit to give you a spot in his family. He condescended to adopt us. It's an efficacious grace, is what the theologians call it. That's who we are obeying. That is beautiful. That is hopeful. And he is a holy good father. A holy gives us the hope that we have. But this is an automatically tainted concept for us. Be like the Father who calls you into hope. 
this is an automatically tainted concept because even the best earthly fathers have aspects of their character that we don't want to imitate. Some of you have fathers who have nothing that you want to be like. I have a great dad, but he had one great weakness. And though there are many things about him that would have dramatically improved my life if I had been more like him, I've certainly spent more focus and energy not being, trying not to be like the one thing that I don't want to be like rather than becoming more like all the ways that I wish I was more like him. And I'm a father. I am one. I hope my girls have my sense of humor. I hope they don't have my sense of empathy. I hope my daughters have my work ethic, but not my negativity. And I could go on and on until you don't want to hear me preach anymore. I love my daughters to death. And there are things I pray that they are not like me. And that's true for all of us. We can't let that constrain our view of God. Because there is nothing about God that is unworthy of imitation. This, I think, is where our biblical euphobia probably exposes itself the most. How could we see the call to God-likeness as negative, as oppressive, as painful, as a burden? I mean, here together right now, probably not, in the light of Jesus, the bond of Christian community, we can probably recognize that there's no... That's what be holy is. There's no more generous command than the command to imitate a perfect father. Everything about God is imitable. It's the best news. It's the best news because the more we become like our good father, the more we live in hope and joy and happiness and peace because he is those things. The more we become like our good father, the more we live in purity and righteousness and holiness because he is those things. And knowing that he is good can cause us to see the sweetness of the call to be like him. Commentator, Bible commentator Edwin Bloom says it so, so succinctly. The simplest understanding of holiness is that of loving conformity to God's commands and to his son. Hope of First Peter. So what's on the other side of this command? We saw it's a lot of good on the one side. What's on the other side? I want you to notice one more thing beginning in verse 17. If you appeal to the Father who judges impartially according to each one's work, you are to conduct yourselves in reverence during your time living as strangers for you ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Christ like that of an unblemished and spotless lamb. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for you. Through him, you believed in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God since you have purified yourselves by obedience to the truth so that you show sincere brotherly 
brotherly love for each other from a pure heart. Love one another constantly because you have been born again. Again, not of perishable seed, but of imperishable through the living and enduring word of God. For all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Here's the last thing for us to see today as we think about hopeful, holy life. Live resting in the gospel. Watch. As you view your life in view of eternity, in view of your new nature, in view of your former ways, in view of your good father, we must remember that even these good things rest in the good news that you were not redeemed from your empty way of life inherited from your ancestors, not with perishable things like silver or gold, but with the precious blood of Jesus Christ. Christian, you get to remember that you are not the key to your holy life because you are perishable. He was foreknown before the foundation of the world. Through him you believe in God who raised him from the dead and gave him glory so that your faith and hope are in God, not yourself. In verse 24, for all flesh is like grass and all its glory like a flower of the grass. The grass withers and the flower falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. And this word is the gospel that was proclaimed to you. Even Here's what this means. Even in a hopeful life, We are flesh. We wither. We say it every Sunday. You may not know that the first part makes it talking about you. It's way easier to say the grass withers. That's an analogy for us. All flesh is like grass. We could start every sermon. We wither and we fall, but the word of the Lord remains forever. The word of the Lord, the gospel the good news of Jesus in our place endures even God. Peter says, your faith and your hope are in God. Even in our hope, even in our hope, we don't rest in our response to our hope. We rest in Jesus, the source of our hope. I work in Bible study publishing. I have for a long time. And like anything else, you have to learn how to do that well. You're bad at it when you start. And I remember the first resource I ever helped develop. I was 25. I was working for Eric Geiger, who is one of the great Christian leaders alive today. And he asked me to do the first draft of a study designed to disciple leaders at our large church in South Florida. And I worked so hard, so much, so much. I literally slept at the church trying to get it done well. This is before anything was available in your house. If you wanted access to the files, you had to be there. And when I gave it to him, he tried to be kind as he asked, what is this? And by the time that study was finished and being presented to hundreds, thousands of staff and volunteers at this church, Nothing about the final product had anything to do with my work. Eric started over. He wrote a Bible study, 
And then he told the church that he and I worked on that study together. It's true that I worked on it. It was so gracious <laughs> to me that I could be credited for what I had brought to the table in that Bible study. But he's a good leader. He's a good leader. He knew there's no reason to belittle, to cast off a 25-year-old who's trying his best. He knew I wasn't awesome, and he knew he could fill in the gaps. Life we are living with Jesus as the co-author. He knows more than we do all the ways that we won't live in the holiness he requires. He knows. He knows that we are like grass and the grass withers and falls. He knows we are perishable. But we're not redeemed by what is perishable. We're redeemed by the imperishable, which means that one day Jesus will present to God <laughs> the final work titled Holiness by Brandon Hiltabidel and Jesus Christ. And none of my work will be on a single page. None of your work will survive that editorial process, I'm happy to tell you. But the word of the Lord remains forever. And this word, I hope that Jesus knows this. A hope, watch, a hope-filled life girds up to battle while resting in the promise that Jesus wins the battle. A hope-filled life imitates the Father while also knowing Psalm 103, that the father has compassion on his children. So the Lord has compassion on those who fear him, for he knows what we are made of, remembering we are dust. As for a man, his days are like grass. He blooms like a flower of the field. When the wind passes over it, it vanishes, and its place is no longer known. But from eternity to eternity, the Lord's faithful love is toward those who fear him. What a position we have in Jesus. Gird up your loins of your mind. Set your hope on the ultimate good. Jesus has, is, and will fill in the gaps. And when you turn in your assignment, you will get a hundred. In just a minute, we're going to sing a song. We're going to take communion. The very first sermon I preached here, I believe, was on communion. And I reminded you, we bring nothing of value to the, to the communion table but the recognition that we need it. Jesus brings everything else. He brings his perfect life. He brings his sacrificial death. He brings his risen body. He brings his ascended sovereignty. That's who is for us. Let's respond in worship. Let's respond taking the bread and the cup. And let me pray for us. Father.
You are holy. You are holy. You are holy. The whole earth is filled with your glory. God, would you make our hearts, our lives, our church filled with your glory? God, I pray that you would make us more like you, make us more righteous and pure, make us more hopeful, more peaceful. Thank you for loving us. Thank you for loving us so much that when you commanded for us to be holy, you sent Jesus to die as we go to your table together, that our hearts will be overwhelmed with gratitude and that that gratitude will make us holier. Let us be as you want us to be. We worship you in the name of Christ. Amen.